are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Amen. Thank you, Andy, for reading that text. Um, I'm grateful to be before you today, just giving honor to God and to all the leaders of this church and to you, the people of God who come out to um, preach through singing as you have participated yourself by reading those words off the screen. It is true that the preacher has already been preached to before he gets behind the podium because he sings the songs of Zion with the people of God. It's the first Sunday, um, and it's Black History Month, and so you know I'm suited and booted, black and white, right? (laughs) Amen. Um, But on a less tertiary level, black and white on the first Sunday in the traditional black church is the first Sunday where we honor God by observing communion. I know we do it here every Sunday. But in the tradition I come from, we do it on first Sundays, and all the deacons and leaders and the pastors wear black, and all the deacons' wives and women wear white, signifying how Christ, who the church is the bride of, has taken on our sin and washed us as white as snow. And so I want to invite you on this morning as we enter into this um, month of American history to peer behind the silhouette and see what the black church has offered to American evangelicalism. Oh, man, I want to, even on that, I just want to thank you guys for singing that song with me. Um, That's one of the best things you can do is have an exposure to other traditions, thereby developing an appreciation for them, and then eventually embracing them as your own. I just love those church expressions. And so uh, picking up where we have left off last week in our series of Gospel Deeps in Romans chapter 10, I'm going to focus here on uh, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says that this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all talking back today or no? All right, thank you, Andy. Um, I love those old songs that have been passed down through the generations and through the ages. There's just something about the way they communicate gospel truth. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Back in the day, uh, what we would uh, have in the church were these mothers of the church, usually deacons' wives or elders' wives, who would always steward and shepherd babes in Christ. Regardless of age, they'd often walk up to you feeble, old women, and they would ask you, they say, uh, you yet holding on? And as a young man, i say, yes, ma'am, I'm yet holding on. And she'd say, well, you just keep on keeping on, baby. And then the first time she asked me that, she gave me a nickel. And this exchange just kept going on as I got older. Every time she'd ask me, she'd say, you yet holding on? And I'd say, yes, Mother Davis, that was her name. Yes, I'm yet holding on. Well, you just keep on keeping on, baby. And she'd give me a quarter and a Half dollar, right? And as I got older, she'd say, John Tavis, that's how she said, John Tavis, you yet holding on? I'd say, yes, ma'am, I'm yet holding on. And she'd say, well, you just keep on keeping on, baby. She gave me a dollar. She never went past that dollar. <laughs> but I, her words drip in the crevices of my mind like dew on the morning grass. When things get tough, she, I hear her words, you just keep on keeping on. You just keep on keeping on. If I could transliterate uh, that old-timey saying into 21st century language and vernacular, I would ask, even on this morning, Joe, that you look at your neighbor 
and shake your neighbor's hand. And I want you to tell them, keep that same energy. I want you to look at your neighbor, shake your neighbor's hand, and tell them, keep that same energy. <laughs> there you go. It may take a little time, but we're getting it. Now, this keep that same energy, right? This is a phrase that the young people use. I remember scrolling on the Twitter feed, and I kept seeing K-T-S-E. I was like, what does that mean? I had to pull uh, Colin, who's the high school that I train in track and field, and I said, what does what is K-T-S-E mean? And he said, oh, it means keep that same energy. And I, I immediately started to feel a little bit more cool, right? <laughs> According to the most trusted source of uh, verified information, vetted information, that trusted source we see on the Internet, uh, Urban Dictionary, uh, it means desiring for an individual to continue to act the same way they were performing during a previous encounter. That's what it means to keep the same energy. D, we look and pick up in this particular portion of our preaching presentation uh, where Pastor Andy left off last week. And looking at chapter 10, we see Paul begins talking about his Jewish brethren. If I can be honest, if I had 10,000 tongues, I couldn't capture all the ways to express the way God has kept the same energy. I can only attempt to recount of his faithfulness. I could say when it comes to his posture towards us, Sahara, he keeps the same energy. I could borrow some of the sayings of the old church and say, he's been better to me than I can even be to myself. Or I could say, he'll be with you in the late in the midnight hour. I could reflect on times when God has been a mind regulator, a healer in the sick room, the one who sits high and looks low, he keeps the same energy. But don't get it twisted. I don't have to rely on hearsay evidence passed down through slang and colloquial sayings of the black church to attest to God's faithfulness in my life. All we have to do, church, today is look back on the entirety of the canon of scripture to see the author of life's attributes laid out for everybody to see. I'll say it this way. God's creativity is an expression of his faithfulness. He is consistently creative. He spoke and there was. He uttered the words and planets came into being. He's the author of life. He voiced his direction and the seas parted ways. He spoke and the air and the land and the waters began to teem with life. But when it came to humanity, he stopped talking and started touching. He kneeled down, gathered the dust and the dirt. And if I can use the language that you used last week, Andy, the speaking God for a few moments became a potter and began to mold and shape, fix and fashion something in someone whom the Bible declares is just a little bit lower than the angels. And in the image of himself, God has created and he has loved us. He's maintained the same posture, Joe, throughout the entire litany of holy writ, whether it was bestowing his image to creatures that did not deserve it or crediting such righteousness to Abraham for his faith, God has kept the same posture towards humanity from the very beginning. And let me call David, son of Jesse, to the witness stand. For David instituted a military census, thereby disobeying God, and the prophet Samuel tells him, you've got to pick and choose your own punishment. And listen to what David says in 2 Samuel 24. He says, whoa, I've got great anxiety, but please let me fall into the Lord's hands because I know his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into human hands because 
because David knew he could count on God's merciful posture towards humanity. David says it this way, I serve a God who keeps the same energy. And I can see I'm going to have to preach this to myself on this morning. So here's a way we can talk about it. The God who we serve, the sovereign God, he's righteous. And his righteousness requires him to bring about just recompense for sin. And yet, Trill, he still faithfully has kept the same merciful energy towards us. The Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became a curse that we might be made right with the Father. Here's a description of the righteous nature of a big God. The author of life is faithful to his word and has kept the same energy from the very beginning. And yet in this particular passage, we find that God's chosen people have turned their backs on him yet again. Romans chapter 10 verse 3 says, Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and have attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. And there are three ways evident here, three paths, three routes present here. First, there's God's way. There's God's way of right. There's God's way of making man right with himself. And that's what these Jewish religious people, the religious intelligentsia of the day, that's what they are rejecting. They are rejecting God's way of making people right with himself. And you know how he does it, right? He does it through faith in Jesus. I like the way Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying all the nations would be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith with Abraham are blessed with Abraham, who also had faith. I love the way the word of God, I love the way Paul uses the Old Testament to preach the gospel. He says it this way, the gospel was proclaimed ahead of time. Proclaim the gospel ahead of time. I love that language when referring to the Old Testament because God has kept the same energy, the same consistent creativity from the very beginning. Looking back, Trill, Paul discovers that God had a creative plan to include everybody, you and me, all along from the very beginning. But for some people, namely these Jews, God's righteousness expressed in creative inclusion is not a enough. And that's what Paul's language here in Romans 10 portrays. These religious Jews have rejected God's way of making man right with himself in favor of man's way or man's attempt at making ourselves right with God. Romans chapter 10 verse 2 says this, I can testify they have a zeal for God but it's not according to knowledge. Now this word zeal has a beautiful imagery associated with it. It mimics the sound of bubbling water perhaps overheat. The imagery is of a old woman boiling eggs in the kitchen. You can hear that sound of bubbling water, or perhaps a bubbling brook, right? The imagery is of boiling from heat, something very fervent, something red hot. But it's used both negatively referring to jealousy, but also positively referring to enthusiasm, zeal. And I would say these Jews, they fit in both categories, don't they? For they've got a big view of God. They, can, they have no problem talking about his righteousness and how awesome he is. They have no problem committing themselves to observing all 613 laws in order that they might be saved and connect and experience life with God. But they've also got, instead of just enthusiasm, they've also got some jealousy because they've been putting a lot of work in. And now through God's creative inclusion, uh, his plan, we've got these Gentiles who've been grafted in and really haven't had to do any of the work. Uh, literally, uh, zeal, it means emotion or disposition that's um, hot enough to boil. You following me this morning? Yep. All right. So uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 3 says, Paul says, I, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God. And so many of us, 
Buster, find ourselves tempted to be this way. To have a strong sense of knowledge about the Bible, minus a genuine experiential understanding of the divine dwelling, his love in the stable, everyday rhythms of life. And it's here that we often diverge into two directions. We either go the way of lofty head knowledge, mental ascent, right? Or we go the way of extremist experiential knowledge. On the one hand, you have what Timothy Keller calls a spiritual crank. That's a person who has so much knowledge that they're unbearable to be around. They are the person who can't stomach just the mundanity, the simplicity of Christian community because they got to always be the smartest person in the room to the degree that they become legalistic. My favorite sitcom, The Office, has a character on The Office named Oscar. Oscar. Oscar's an accountant. Oscar's cool. Oscar's of Latin descent. But after a while, they stopped calling him Oscar. And they started calling him actually. Because every time somebody would say something, here comes Oscar. Well, actually. And that's what the imagery here is of someone who is giving mental assent to knowing God, thereby having that be their righteousness. You're, you're really just becoming actually. But on the other hand, you've got the experiences of the extremists. See, they can't stomach something more thoughtful. They can't stomach the notion of mental rigor when it comes to God because for them, it's all about what feels right. Listen to C.S. Lewis talk about this while he was, I guess, doing some teaching and preaching work with the RUF. He says, I remember once when an old, hard-bitten officer got up and said, I have no use for all that stuff. The officer says, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him out there alone in the desert night. And that's why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. And I think he's right. But knowledge and enthusiasm don't have to be antithetical. Theology, as C.S. Lewis says, is like a map. Merely learning and thinking about Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend experienced in the desert. He says it this way, doctrines are not God. They are only a kind of map but a map that is based on the experiences of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God. Experiences that compare it with what the thrills that we are seeking after, you know, dim lights, smoke machines. If you compare these experiences that have been captured throughout the litany of Holy Writ and captured in church history, if you compare that with what we are chasing after on today, it really doesn't measure up. C.S. Lewis says if you want to go any further than your experiences, you've got to use the map. So a zeal for knowledge should mesh well with our experiences. Amen? Amen. But Jewish brethren in this text, they have an intense zeal, but it didn't mesh well with anything or anyone. Their intensity was more of a babbling brook. It wasn't like that. It was more like hot, boiling water, dangerous. So why were they so zealous? I'm glad you asked. Paul gives a clear answer as to why they were jealous, why they were zealous, why they were rigorous and rough around the edges. He says it right there in chapter 9. You heard Andy read it last week. He calls them by their name. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. As a matter of fact, he turns it up a notch and says in verse 5, the ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all and praised forever. The latter portion is the confession he desires the Israelites to make, the Jewish people to make. He wants them to confess Christ as Lord, not just Messiah. A better way to say it would be the author of life keeps the same energy, and these activists of the law, the Jewish religious intelligentsia, should keep the same energy, but they are 
to aim it differently. He's saying, I don't want you to change your intensity. Keep that same zeal. Keep your same head knowledge, but allow it to express itself in three ways. Heat, head, and heart. Heat, which is excitement. Head, which is knowledge. But heart also, which is the love of God and love for others. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10 and 9. For one believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. See, confession there in the original language in the Greek, it is declaration. It's public. It's heard. And it's known. And let me pause right here and pitch a tent, set up residence, and talk about how confession truly and honestly, even transliterated from that context to ours, it equals public discomfort, not public popularity. This affects how we engage in the public sphere, even politics. As a matter of fact, if you're following Jesus, you ought to feel politically homeless because each party asks us to compromise in some way. But if our righteousness is in Christ, we can overcome the temptation to compromise. And I've seen two ditches one can fall into on the topics of orthodoxy and justice in the social arena of life. You've got the peer pressure from one group in an effort to be orthodox to make you deny that the scriptures clearly talk about social justice and deny that we still have issues of injustice and institutional racism today. But then you've got the other side so busy trying to be woke, they make you deny the scriptures speak clearly about things like abortion or homosexuality. The reality is that if you are following Jesus, you're going to feel homeless in this world because our ultimate loyalty is not to evangelical reform police or to the woke parties. Ultimately, it's to Christ and his word. And to follow him faithfully can mean at times we will find ourselves at odds even with our own tribes and traditions. Amen. The confession is about public discomfort, but it also has parameters. And let me pause here, and that's why I want to thank you, Andy, for faithfully preaching Romans 9 as the best way you see it. But I want to thank you from the week before that for preaching and not putting it on the black preacher to talk about injustice. Thank you. (laughs) The confession is public, but it also has parameters. The confession there means, in the original language, to say the same as. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you got to call it like God calls it. You can't mean Jesus is just my friend or Jesus is just my homeboy. you got to say he is Lord. He's the, he's the boss. He's paid the cost to be the boss. So it's not just public discomfort, but it's also private discontent. What that means is that we gladly accept God's grace to us, and we adhere to it with gracious thanksgiving. That means we never rest on our laurels and feel like, oh, we're all right with God. Be wary of people who embrace justification minus sanctification. We are definitely walking on that road. Uh, The old church would say, I'm on the highway to heaven. And that's how we ought to see this public confession. It should come with public discomfort, but also private discontent. The public nature of confession starts in the private practices of the heart. Listen to Paul's public confession produced from private reflection. He says it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, listen, I got reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anybody thinks they got more reason than me, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of nation, nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, born, Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisees, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But here's his public confession. Everything, even comfort, that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss of Christ. 
because of Christ. And more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's the public confession that equals uh, public discomfort and private discontent. You ought to want to know God, even in the fellowship of his discomfort. And yet, these Jews, the religious intelligentsia, maintained that the way to be right with God was through keeping the law. And Jessica, you know what? They were right. The Bible is clear. Tim, the law does give life to those who keep it. I know you don't believe me. Let's look at it. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2. Keep my commands and live. Leviticus 18 and 5. Keep my statutes and ordinances, and a person will live if he does them. Matthew 19 and 17. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Nehemiah 9, 29. They sinned against your commandments, which a person will live by if he does them. Ezekiel 20 and 21. The person who does keep these commandments will live by them. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10. This man replied to Jesus in a holy exchange. He says, the scriptures say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they also say, love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. Jesus says it this way. You've answered correctly. Bingo. He says, do this and you will live. It's clear from scripture that while the law does give life, here it is, nobody can keep it. Or you can, no one can obtain righteousness by it. For the word of God declares in Romans chapter 10, it's right there in your Bibles. You close your Bible already? You know you lost. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 says what? It says Christ is the end of the law. But he didn't abolish the law. He just fulfilled the requirements of it. That's why he hung on the cross and he cried out to tell us thy, for it is finished. It has been completed. And that's what we take joy in on a Sunday morning. That's why we raise our voices and we don't come in dim and down. We come in rejoicing because God has paid the cost to be the boss. We look at the law. It's like walking into a carnival. Back home where I'm from in Dothan, Alabama, we have a thing called the Peanut Festival. I encourage you to come one day. We're going this year. Um, you know, funnel cakes, Ferris wheels, you know, farm animals, the whole nine, all that stuff, right? But there's always those, um, those skill competitions, shooting basketball in the hoop, try to spray the water gun into the target. And then there's that classic one, right, even from back in the day, where you take that sledgehammer and you try to ring the bell up top, right? And you walk by even today, knowing you ain't been to the gym in months. And yet, you still want to pick up that heavy hammer and you get that thing of swing and what happens? And you miss the mark. You can't, you can't even get the close to ringing the bell, right? That's the way the law to make us feel. But let's just say you pick up the hammer and you swing it and you, and you make contact. But you, you can't quite measure up to ring the bell. Or let's just say you're strong enough. Let's just say you're Drew. You're in the gym every day. You swing that hammer, right? You make contact and it hits the bell and it rings the bell. Only to find out that even that feat does not measure up against the righteousness of our holy God. The law ought to help us see ourselves not as the faithful few, but as the people who are recipients of grace, the favored few. Uh, it's like that big mirror you see sometimes in the bathroom, the one that like you pull out and it's like it makes your face real big and you can see all the blackheads and the pores and you're like looking at yourself like, oh, man, I got a really dirty face. That's how we ought to see the law. The law ought to serve as a reflection of where, where we don't measure up. If I can appeal to that imagery that Andy painted for us with uh, clearly the white guy who went scuba diving and <laughs> got bumped into and turned around and saw the eye of a blue whale. 
remember, uh, I remember we were back there, and me and him looked at each other like, nope, nope. <laughs> but these Jews would look at that eye. they look at the eye of the blue whale, and instead of pushing back in dreadful fear, in awe, in reverent fear, what these Jews are doing is checking to see, is anybody else scared? Are you scared enough? That's, that's, that's what these Jews are doing. Talking about the righteousness of God, but trying to police it in other people. My wife and I, we love the newest rendition of Godzilla. I'm not ashamed. We watch it. We love it. It's great. Thank you, Josh. Right? <laughs> Done very well. It's not super deep. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not super deep. It's monsters fighting, destroying buildings. That's what I'm paying my money for. That's what I want. <laughs> They've done a great job. It's good. But, it, but imagine, imagine those people running away from these gargantuan monsters, right? Everybody's running in fear and terror. But then you've got a few people in the crowd like, oh, oh, are you scared enough? You don't seem scared enough. That didn't even make sense. But that's what these Jews are doing. They're, they're trying to police people. The Jews did not see the law rightly in that they saw it as a reflection of themselves and their own righteousness. In this chapter, Paul describes the righteousness of God two ways, embodied and bestowed. Embodied by a righteous and holy God, but bestowed and bequeathed to his children. And the latter was a major stumbling block for the Jews of his day. See, they had no problem talking about how big God was, how holy he was, how righteous he was. But to imply that people, Gentiles at that, were recipients of righteousness, oh, that was blasphemy. It's here that I'm reminded of that story told back in ancient Palestine a parable uttered from the lips of our Lord in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus says, once upon a time, there was a landowner who had a vineyard during grape season, and he looked out to see if he could hire some, some migrant workers to come and assist him in collecting grapes. And he did what many people in big cities do when they need laborers. They go down to the labor pool down to Home Depot early in the morning, and they select possible workers to come to work as day laborers. And so he worked out that the people who would come and work would receive one denarius. And that was enough to back then to equate to one working day's wage. And the owner would pay these laborers one denarius for working all day in the hot sun. The owner goes down to the vineyard, goes down to Home Depot, picks up some day laborers, and they were just, you know, they were just hanging around, which would be the right word given that the, it's the perfect image of dependence in the Latin to hang around, to be suspended like a chandelier in a living room to be sustained by a power greater than itself. These laborers were hanging around depending on a power greater than themselves to sustain them for another day of employment. I'm talking to somebody today. So the owner of the vineyard goes down at 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m. He says, look, I'm going to give you what's right. I'm going to give you one Daenerys. And the story continues and concludes and says, when those who were left, the owner came back and found them at 5 o'clock. What are y'all doing here? Y'all don't want to work? We want to work, but nobody will hire us. Tell you what, we got a little bit more work left. It's 5 o'clock. Y'all come down, and we'll see what we can work out. So these workers come down, and they work the vineyard from 5 o'clock to the end of the day, and it's time to get paid. And the owner says, I'm going to start from the end of the line, from those people who arrived just as late. Gave them one Daenerys. And when the workers who had been there since 6 and 9 and 12 and 3, they had been there all day. You know what they did? They were like, oh, man. I know I'm about to get paid because by right, they were only here since 5 o'clock. And what happened was when the first one came, they assumed that they would get more, but they received one Daenerys each. And when they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These men, they ain't put in but an hour. And you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. And the owner, 
whom they were dependent on, replied to them, he said, friend, I love this language, I'm doing you no wrong, don't you agree, didn't you agree with me for one Daenerys? Take what's yours and go. I want to give you, I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Then he says, are you jealous because I'm generous? What makes that story worse is that it begins with these words, and the kingdom of God is like. When I read this story, the phrase that comes to mind is a great reversal. And let me say, I know so many Christians who read this story as God's reversal, and they say, I don't like it. Because when it comes to this particular story, the devil isn't in the details. It's in the disposition from which you read it. If you read the story from the position of, that's not fair, it's because you're starting at the wrong place. If you begin with, I don't like that I've been working since 6 a.m. and you came in at 5 and we ended up in the same place, it's because you have started, hear me, from the position of entitlement. And that's where these Jews were, starting from entitlement and pride. That's what it is, to think that you are owed something more than the next man. To, to, to reach out and try to grab what belongs to God and determine how it should be dispensed. And if there's anything people ought to know once they are in the helpless position of staring into the gargantuan eye of a whale, it should be this. I'm not entitled to anything. Nevertheless, that's where these Jews were rejecting God's way of making man right with himself and attempting to make man right with God in their own attempts. But there's another way. It's not just about God's way or man's way. There's also my way, my way of trying to feel right with myself. The Bible says at the very end of verse 3 in Romans chapter 10, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. The key phrase there is submit. As my father in the ministry would always say, if you agree with it, it's not submission. See, everyone has their own standard. Everyone has their own way of seeing what's right. And the truth is, even people who don't consider themselves to be religious, they have a standard of righteousness. Everybody faces the temptation to be their own God, living up to their own uh, subjective rules of truth, justice, and morality. This looks like the person who won't cheat on their taxes, but will cheat on their wife or their spouse. The person who wouldn't harm an animal, but would turn a blind eye to violent action towards defenseless humanity. Who will decry and denounce injustice in the womb, but ignore it as it exists outside the womb who will tout moral perspectives publicly and diminish their own private feelings. See, depravity is revealed in the distance between what we pardon within ourselves and what we police in other people. Everybody has their standard of righteousness, but when we embrace the righteousness of God, it strips away all of our claims of superiority. Because, see, most people don't base their moral standing on a deep, thoughtful, and vertical reflection on the righteousness of God. Most of us find our moral standing on a, sl- on a shallow, quick, and horizontal level. What are we asking ourselves? Am I better than the next man? We do this because it's easy. So you can pick and choose your target. You can choose your mark. It's pride. But it's also pride. Also, hear me. It's pride to think that you're not good enough for God, that you've done something so bad that God can't use you. This is what paralyzes millions of Christians in the West from living the abundant life that Jesus offers. We've all got family, friends, coworkers who say things like, you know, I'm going to come to church once I get myself together. I've heard people say things like that. Say things like, God can't use someone as broken as me. That's a lie from the pits. Read the Bible. 
it seems to me that God is concerned with using folks that other people would count out. Thanks be unto God that a sovereign God is consistently creative and includes every single one of us. How creative is he? That's why I like preaching to y'all. You always ask the right questions. See, in the previous chapter, Paul shows that God has said that he will call a people that were not his and graft them into the fold. As Paul is quoting in Romans 9, he's quoting Hosea. This is what it says. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people, and she who was unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people, and they will be called the sons of the living God. Paul is quoting Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2. You know who Hosea was, right? Hosea was the prophet who was commanded to marry a prostitute as a reflection of how Israel had prostituted themselves away from a holy God. And she would give birth to sons. And God would say, this is what you name your sons. This is what it says in Hosea chapter 1. See, God keeps the same energy. He's consistently creative. Hosea is referring to Israel. The Bible says, the Lord said, name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. See, right there, he's talking not about Gentiles. He's talking about Israel. Then he says in chapter 2, he says, I will have compassion on Loami. I will say to Loami, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. See, God says, although you've had a hardened heart and I had to make you not my people, I can still come back and make you my people because I have compassion. See, sometimes we forget that God is consistently creative. Paul is using the Hosea passage to reflect on how God has grafted Gentiles. But don't forget Jewish people that this was you back in the day. God had to call you not my people. And then because of his compassion, nothing we could do in and of ourselves, he has grafted us back in. Amen? Amen. The Bible says, I am the Lord and my plans cannot be thwarted because I keep the same energy. God has a long track record of softening hard hearts. He keeps the same energy. It's not just about the author of life or the activist of the law. It's also about the author of the letter. He's got some experience with God softening hearts. Because you remember in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, Paul tried to give the gospel to the Jewish people. And Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, was a part of not, not hearing him, pushing him away. But then in 1 Corinthians, talking about Sosthenes, the one who was leading the riot, the Bible says that Paul starts his letter off to the church at Corinth and says this. It's me, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And who else? Sosthenes, our brother. God has a long track record of softening hearts. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the author of life. Y'all hear me? He keeps the same energy. And if we were left to our own devices, we just continue on in that hypocrisy. But thanks be unto God for the confrontational truth of his law. It meets us right where we are. And what mercy it is to see the truth of how broken we are. What mercy it is to see that we are in desperate need of a savior. God is righteous enough, listen to this, to wait you out. He knows that deep down our hearts are wicked. God knows our tendency to favor those who are familiar to us. And he knows why. And that's why he commands us to look into the mirror of his law so that we can see how broken we are. He knows that today we've got our own socially accepted standards of morality and righteousness. And he knows also that it doesn't measure up to his righteousness. And so a merciful God lets us go on until that cognitive dissonance, that inconsistency, eventually catch, catches up with us. And I'm grateful to God on today for his mercy, that I would have struck down in my arrogance and my hypocrisy. His mercy, as we sing, is more. More than what? I'm glad you asked. His mercy is more than what we deserve. 
I'm grateful to God on this morning. I'm grateful to a big, merciful, and grateful God and gracious God because our God keeps the same energy. Another way to say that would be to say, Joe, that he has staying power. He's keeping energy is boasted of in Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that God kept Noah even though he didn't spare the entire world in the flood. The Bible says in Psalm 121 verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The Bible says in Isaiah 26 that if you, he will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Oh, to be kept by Jesus, kept by the power of God, kept through toils and trials. I'm treading where Jesus trod. God, keeping the same energy, has extended his loving arms to everyone. And we ought to keep the same energy we had when we recognized his loving kindness toward us. Amen. We ought to keep the same energy when we think about God's loving kindness. You hear me? Loving kindness. Loving, that's two words. That's a conjunction. But the Hebrew expresses it in one word. I had to use two words to express what God says in, in the Hebrew about one word. The word is hesed. I got to use two words to describe the nature and character of a loving, kind God when it's only really one word. What that means is that English is the poverty of speech when it comes to capturing the concept of kindness that this loving, kindly, and a kindly love. God keeps the same energy. And so I want to tell you that as we reflect the character of God, because we've been made sons of the Most High God, I have a word for you. Keep the same energy. The gospel is calling to all of us on this morning. Pick your head up. Keep the same energy. Square your shoulders and keep the same energy. You are a child of the Most High King, and you ought to keep that same energy. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. I know you've messed up. I know you've dropped the ball, but the good news that a big God is begging you to do what the old folks used to do, my grandparents We'd spend summers with them. They would take us on errands with them. We'd go down the impulse shopping aisle before you get the register, and we'd say, Granddaddy, Granny, can I get some Skittles? Can I get some Snickers? Can I get this or whatever? And we were always waiting for them to say one word, I reckon. Because I reckon is kind of like, ah, I guess so. But to a child, it means yes. <laughs> the gospel begs us all to reckon on the goodness of Jesus. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time shall not compare with the future glory that shall be revealed. I reckon that the discontent of this present time shall not compare with the glory that shall be. I reckon that the dissatisfaction, I reckon that being maligned, I reckon that the injustice, I reckon that the hurt and the pain, I reckon that the misunderstandings, I reckon that the loss of life, I reckon that the pain of this present time shall not compare with the future glory that shall shall be revealed in us and that's what God is commanding us to do to reckon on how he's kept the same energy and he's calling all of us to keep the same energy you can't do anything in and of yourself to save yourself so keep the same helpless energy present yourself to God respond to his word with a humble conviction for everyone is saved not from Arminianism or complementarianism or whatever, Calvinism, you're not saved because of you vote left or you vote right. You're not saved by what you drive or how much you make. It's from the heart. It begins on the inside. So if I can implore anybody to do anything on this morning, it would be to measure whether or not Christ is your cornerstone. Are you building your righteousness on your own acts? How well you serve? What time you show up to church? Are you building your righteousness on pushing the law to the very end? Huh? Are you measuring your righteousness on anything other than Christ as the cornerstone? 
That's where we build our house. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word on this morning. As we listen to what the Spirit says to the church, we ask ourselves, what shall we render? You've offered everything to us and asked us for nothing, only our lives. God, help us to find private discontent and public discomfort in putting our identity in you and you alone. God, we're not looking to anything else to measure ourselves. We're looking at your law and your son Jesus. We're looking for the truth expressed in your son Jesus. For in the beginning was the word, and you were with God, God. Everything was created through you. God, we ask you on this morning to give people strength to humble themselves and know that you can pull them out of whatever mire they find themselves in. There is no sin too great to where you can't pull them back. Give us the courage and the strength to say, Jesus is Lord from our hearts. Help us to have faith in you, God. Help us to build our lives and our houses on you as the cornerstone. You are the foundation, God. Help us to war against the temptation to measure ourselves horizontally. Give us hearts that break for what breaks your heart, God. Help us to look at one another with compassion the same way you look at us, God. Help us to keep the energy that you have given to us. Help us to be forgiven and to forgive others. Help us to receive mercy and extend mercy to others. Help us to be recipients of grace and, and then give grace and favor, God. Help us to reflect your character by building our lives and our righteousness and our value and our identity on Christ Jesus alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.